What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, facing what may be the darkest days of the pandemic, but light, hopefully, at the end of the tunnel. Dr. Scott Gottlieb. I think as we get into March and maybe April, we're going to find that vaccine is widely available and people, if they want to get vaccinated, will be able to get vaccinated. But until then, we're going to be rationing. But who will take the vaccine? Mike Allen, co-founder of Axios, on the bumpy road still ahead. This is a real problem. The bureaucratic term for it is vaccine hesitancy. Those conversations plus a big week for IPOs and it's the great migration. Florida is hotter than ever for tax breaks. Goldman Sachs is the latest financial player to consider a move to the Sunshine State. Don't people have some patriotic duty to their own cities? A little bit? Is it just? I don't know. It's Monday, December 7th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Andrew? Okay, let's uh, talk about some of these IPOs that are coming up this week. Airbnb planning to increase its IPO price range, aiming for a potential $42 billion valuation. Now, there are also reports that DoorDash expected to price at the high end or above uh, its uh, increased range. Both IPOs will bring a flood of stock to the market when they debut. And uh, Leslie Picker joins us now with the latest on all of it. Leslie. Hey, good morning, Andrew. Two multi-billion dollar IPOs coming to market this week. DoorDash set to make its debut on Wednesday, followed by Airbnb on Thursday. It's important to underscore the rarity of this level of issuance in a single week. Excluding SPACs, we're expecting to see more than $7 billion worth of IPOs this week. Since the start of 2014, only three other weeks have surpassed that kind of volume. Most recently, in mid-September, there was a big week of software debuts when Snowflake, Unity, and JFrog went public, raising a combined $8 billion. Before that, the only weeks that saw greater issuance was in May of 2019 when Uber went public, and then September 2014 when Alibaba went public. Now, what's different this time around is that the billions of dollars in new stock is coming weeks before the end of the year, when most institutional investors lock in their performance for incentive fee purposes. That's when it becomes imperative for them to beat their benchmark. And if their benchmark is, say, the Nasdaq, they're looking at gains of about 40 percent to beat. That could drive up demand, as IPOs can, of course, be a source of alpha with the day one pop. But it could also cause investors who are already ahead to sit these deals out to avoid any any last-minute risk-taking because that pop is all but guaranteed. Considering Airbnb and DoorDash both up to their price ranges, it appears that they're receiving greater-than-expected demand at this stage in the game, guys. So, Leslie, I mean, the, the, the funny part about this is some of these companies, including Airbnb, wanted to do, a, at one point, a direct listing. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah. is it just... Is, I mean, obviously, they also need, to, need and want to raise money, but in this environment, it seems like you gotta, you got to raise the money. I think that's right. You have to raise the money in this environment, especially if your business is potentially impacted by the next few months and 
you know, who knows what's to come with regard to, to shutdown orders and the like. And I was thinking about this too yesterday uh, as I was kind of wrapping my head around this hit. I do wonder, because with the direct listing, you don't necessarily get that same amount of interest from a listing at the end of the year that you might get with a traditional IPO because it's the institutional investors that get allocation at the stock at what they hope would be a price that would be poised to pop on the first day of trading. So if you have a direct listing, you don't really have that kind of incentive structure as you would with a traditional IPO at the end of the year. I don't know if that actually changed their calculus, but it's certainly something that could be a tailwind for their IPO in a traditional IPO process. You bet. Uh, Leslie Picker, always great to see you. Thank you. New stay-at-home orders going into effect in California. Uh, People in the southern part of the state, as well as much of the San Francisco Bay Area and other spots, won't be allowed to gather with anyone outside their household. Supermarkets can only operate at 20 percent capacity, and restaurants, hair salons, and playgrounds must shut down. The new orders are rekindling the debate uh, from the spring about uh, what should be allowed to stay open when the virus surges. Uh, Now, when he joined us on Friday, New York Times columnist Tom Friedman weighed in on that question with this response. We set up this crazy debate that it was mass or job, you know, mass or school, mass or football. And it never should have been that. It should have been mass for school, mass for restaurant, mass for jobs. And and if people want to, um, uh, and and as you know, we talked about this. I was very early on saying we have to we have to balance lives and livelihoods here, folks. Restrictions in 11 counties in Southern California uh, were triggered when ICU capacity fell below 15 percent. Goldman Sachs considering planning uh, to go to Florida and create a new hub there for its asset management arm. It's according to a Bloomberg story and. Uh, saying that executives have been scouting locations in South Florida, speaking with local officials and exploring tax advantages. The report says that Goldman's also looking at Dallas, where it's been expanding as well. Manhattan, of course, has the most office space available since 2001. Other investment firms have been increasing their presence in Florida, including Blackstone, Citadel, and Elliott Management. So you're starting to see the move potentially. Unclear exactly how how much of a tax benefit they would get because the headquarters would still be in New York. So there'd be some, some, but potentially they could move some of that. And then the other issues that arguably, and I've heard this before, a lot of the clients, especially in the sort of the, some of the wealthiest people in America are moving to Florida in part for taxes. So, um, but, but it does mean that uh, people are more mobile than they used to be. That, that is 100% true. 10 years ago, I, I, I didn't believe people were as mobile, and I don't think they were. Today, I think the mobility is a different story. Well, Two years if ago, the I didn't NASDAQ think people goes were as mobile, to but Texas, I think COVID has showed us. Yeah, if the Nasdaq moves to Texas, I'm headed to Florida. I'm te- you know, you guys can, can come if you want, or, or, or now we're not together now. But uh, if I have no place to go, what do you go, mean you're not going to Texas? Uh, in Times Square, I love taxes. I love that. Ta- like Andrew, I'm like you. I love taxes, so I, I would never go to Florida. Based on any type of tax implication. I mean, it's nice down there. Nice golf courses, uh, nice weather, uh, nice Hold people. On. You know what? Actually, um, I just thought of something. I was sent to oh, – stay where you are. I was sent a sweatshirt just recently. I'm going to put it on because I believe it for me. You guys do what you're doing. I'll be back in one uh, second. I hope there's no four-letter words on the sweatshirt uh, for, for, for you, Andrew. Are there – the way people are feeling, uh, what did it – uh, where's your sure. mic? Can you hear me? I just took my mic off. New York uh, or nowhere. All right. 
But I, uh, we'll see. We'll I see. Uh, Is, don't people have some patriotic duty to their own cities a little bit? Is it just... I don't know. Milburn, maybe New Jersey. it's good for their yes. business. Who knows? Yes. I've moved around a lot. Yeah, and I, I, I wouldn't mind my money going to New Jersey. Next on Squawk Pod, a COVID vaccine may be on the way, but who will be the first in line? Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former head of the FDA, on giving Americans a shot in the arm. The reality is we're going to have to make hard decisions. We're going to be rationing this for the next two to three months. Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. This is Squawk Pod. Good morning. Welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin, along with Becky Quick and Joe Kernan. Let's show you a second. Infections of the COVID-19 virus have accelerated across the United States. New daily caseloads have topped 200,000 several times in the last week, with daily deaths from the virus surpassing 2,000 repeatedly. More than 280,000 Americans have died during this pandemic. Dr. Deborah Burks, the White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator, warned on Meet the Press this weekend that the situation is dire. This fall winter surge is combining everything that we saw in the spring with everything that we saw in the summer. This is not just the worst public health event. This is the worst event that this country will face. The United Kingdom has begun distributing the COVID vaccine made by Pfizer and BioNTech. The first doses will be administered at hospitals starting tomorrow to three different groups, people over 80, frontline healthcare workers, and nursing home staff and residents. In the United States, an FDA advisory panel will meet on Thursday to issue guidance on the Pfizer vaccine. This follows review of the clinical trial data and should offer a hint to when the regulator will approve the vaccine for use in this country. Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner and CNBC contributor, joined us this morning on Squawk Box. Dr. Gottlieb also serves on the board of Pfizer as well as Illumina, and his latest Wall Street Journal op-ed asks the question and gives some answers. Who will get the COVID vaccine first? Here's Becky. Doctor, welcome. It's good to see you. Um, First of all, let's talk about this. If approval is given on Thursday by this FDA committee, how quickly do you think Americans will actually start getting vaccinated here? Very quickly, within days. So the supply that Pfizer has said is going to be available for the month of December, and as you mentioned, I'm on the board of Pfizer, is largely already manufactured. So that supply is actually available and ready to go. So that'll start shipping as soon as the authorization comes, as it did in the UK. As soon as they got the authorization in the UK, trucks were rolling through the channel from Europe into the United Kingdom to deliver those supplies. Those are in place in the United Kingdom. As you said, they're going to start vaccinating tomorrow. They may vaccinate upwards of 800,000 people this week. UK authorities have said that. So we'll be ready to go very quickly here in the U.S. if the authorization comes. So you'll see those vaccinations start very quickly. We know that it's going to go to first responders, healthcare workers, the elderly first. But even within that, there are still a lot of questions about how you kind of dole those out. There, there have been questions, and I hadn't thought about this before, but if, if every person needs two doses of the vaccine, 
Should it be the situation where you give someone a dose and then you put their second dose on, on the shelf and let them wait for a month to get the next dose? Or should that second dose go as a first dose to somebody else with the expectation that there's going to be more manufactured to be there in time? What are the risks of each? Well, look, my personal opinion is that they should push out as many vaccines as possible. So they should vaccinate everyone with the available supply with the assumption that they're going to have the doses available in a month because supply ramps very quickly. The reality is that the government's going to be holding on to some doses to make sure that everyone that they give a first dose to can have a second dose. Um, I don't think they should be doing that. Um, the first dose is partially protective. I think you want to get as many people vaccinated as possible. And quite frankly, if a month from now we don't have enough supply to give everyone who got the first dose a second dose, we're going to have larger problems. Uh, that's going to mean that there was a supply disruption in one or both manufacturers. So I think we need to take a little bit of risk in the setting of a crisis and try to push out as much vaccine as possible this month, given the fact that this is going to be the worst month of the epidemic and that we know one dose can be partially protective in some patients. And then, you know, expect that we're going to have the supply a month from now because supply ramps very quickly as you get into 2021. So this is someplace where I disagree with the plan that the federal government's put forward. I think they should push out as much vaccine as possible. Doctor, can I ask you something? If, if someone gets vaccinated or if someone has already had COVID, does that mean they can't be a carrier and, and spread it to somebody else? Do we know the answer to that question yet? Not fully. Um, so what the trials have demonstrated is that the vaccines are very effective at reducing the signs and symptoms of COVID, the disease. We don't know if they reduce or eliminate your ability to get coronavirus, the infection. What we do know is that if people do get coronavirus, the infection, they're not becoming symptomatic with, the, with vaccination. Um, you know, there is an assumption among some that the vaccines probably are already also reducing the incidence of infection, but we don't know that for sure. That needs to be demonstrated in clinical trials. There will be some data coming out of these trials that will help inform that question, but ultimately, to fully inform that question, we're going to be dependent upon post-market evidence and following patients who get vaccinated to see if they get signs of infection, just not signs of symptomatic COVID disease. Hey, doctor, uh, hoping you can uh, help, uh, frankly, end uh, a debate that I'm not sure is a debate, but, but maybe, it, maybe it is for some. Do you believe that it is a higher risk to eat indoors, indoors, specifically indoors at a restaurant, even distanced indoors at a restaurant, than it is to go to a big box retailer where people are ostensibly wearing masks? Look, I do personally. Um, I, I think it's hard to debate that if you're eating indoors in a confined space and you're taking a mask off, people who eat indoors are talking loudly in many cases. Um, and again, you're not wearing a mask, you're in a confined space. I think that there's no question that's a higher risk. Could there be certain indoor restaurant settings that are optimized where they've taken steps to substantially reduce the risk? Possibly. Um, I will tell you on a personal level, I've gone to many big box stores properly masked and I wear a high quality mask when I go out. I will not eat indoors in a restaurant. So I've been eating outdoors um, since the summertime and wouldn't eat indoors in a restaurant. I think that the risk is too high to be in a confined space without a mask on with other people um, eating in that same, same location right now. Hey, doctor, let, let me ask you about some comments that Dr. Deborah Burks made over the weekend. She said that we are facing what could be the most trying event in the nation's history over the next few months. I mean, that's a pretty high bar. You think about all the things that this nation has been through. What does that look like? How is it different from what we're looking at right now? Well, I think we need to understand that what we're looking at right now um, is going to get progressively worse over the next four to six weeks. So infections are going to continue to grow for at least four weeks. 
and the number of deaths and hospitalizations are going to continue to grow for probably the next six weeks. So we're not going to peak in terms of the number of hospitalizations and ICU admissions um, for at least six weeks, and then deaths are going to continue to rise short uh, for a period of time after that. So we may peak at around 150 to 175,000 hospitalizations and maybe 50,000 ICU admissions. That's not out of the question. When you think about the available bed capacity, the total bed capacity in the United States, you're talking about 100,000 ICU beds, but that includes a lot of pediatric intensive care unit beds, surgical intensive care unit beds, neurosurgical intensive care unit beds. So when you're at 50,000, you've largely exhausted your supply of medical intensive care unit beds by a lot. And there's less than a million hospital beds in this country. So when you're talking about 175,000 people hospitalized, um, we're going to be well past overflow. And, and what we did in the past waves of this infection, they were regionalized. So we were able to create a surge capacity and create new beds and staff those beds. We're not going to be able to do that this time around, largely because we're not going to be able to staff them, because doctors are going to be pressed and nurses all around the nation. So this is going to get very difficult. And the steps that we take over the next two weeks is largely going to decide how bad that looks a month from now, because there's a lagging effect of the mitigation that we take. So we're really going to be locked in. Well, whatever we decide to do over the next two weeks, that's going to affect really how bad this gets. We're going to be locked in at that point. So in, in California this morning, there are plenty of counties where they're waking up to new lockdown orders. Those were triggered because of the 15 percent capacity left in intensive care units there. Is that the right move to tell people that they can't go outside once you get to those levels? Well, I don't know if we should put a hard metric on it because there is different capacity around different parts of the country. I do think that we're going to end up closing hospitality in a lot of parts of the country and suspending elective surgeries. That's going to be the first thing that mayors and governors reach for. But the reality is we can't ask small businesses to bear the brunt of this. We can't ask a restaurant owner and the workers in a restaurant to bear the brunt of the collective action that we need to take to save our society. Congress has to step in here. And it's really hard to understand how Congress and the administration hasn't stepped in to pass another paycheck protection program and provide assistance to the businesses that are going to bear the brunt of the steps we need to take collectively to try to really forestall disaster in this country. So that absolutely has to happen really right away. Doctor, I just wanted to go back to the vaccine issue for a second, because one of the, the interesting points that you've made over the weekend and others uh, about the distribution of it is whether we should be effectively trying to save lives or livelihoods, right? That's, that's become a bit of the debate and, and also trying to get the economy back on track in terms of who should be prioritized for getting, for getting this vaccine. Uh, there are some places, for example, talking about giving it to prisoners uh, and other uh, places saying you shouldn't be giving it to prisoners. Uh, they were guilty of doing something. Uh, it should be given to people who are either working on the front lines. Uh, that will help get the economy back in order uh, more quickly. Is there a way to do both, or do you really think it's a Hobson's choice? Well, I think the, the idea of giving it to prisoners and homeless shelters is that those congregate settings become places where you have a lot of spread, where it could spread very quickly. I think the real fundamental debate is that do you use the vaccine for maximum preservation of life, in which case you would probably give it to elderly individuals first and you'd prioritize older Americans, or do we try to use it to address some of the health disparities that we've seen in how COVID's affected society? And giving it to essential workers has become a proxy for trying to address those social ills because a lot of essential workers are lower income Americans who've been forced to work and forced to be exposed to COVID and have been affected at a disproportionate rate relative to other Americans. And that's the difficult question. The reality is we're going to have to make hard decisions. We're going to be rationing this for the next two to three months. I think what's going to happen is 
We're going to be in a situation where it feels like there's not enough vaccine, demand's clearly outstripping supply, and then all of a sudden there's going to be a point in time when there's a lot of vaccine, and then governors are going to be struggling to give it all away. And where that inflection point is, I'm not so sure. I suspect it's somewhere around March. I think as we get into March and maybe April, we're going to find that vaccine is widely available or more widely available, and people, if they want to get vaccinated, will be able to get vaccinated. But until then, we're going to be rationing. I believe, and I wrote this morning, that we should be prioritizing older Americans to try to achieve maximum preservation of life. But within targeting older Americans, I think we have to take extra steps to try to get it out, of, out to disadvantaged Americans, people in, in more crowded housing, in lower income communities where, where access to care isn't as, a, as good, um, and try to push it out into those communities that have faced um, obstacles getting access to good care and also faced higher rates of infection because people live in crowded housing circumstances. They can't socially distance. They have to go out for groceries. They can't just order groceries to the home. So we have to focus it on not just elderly individuals, but elderly individuals in communities that have faced higher rates of infection and worse outcomes. Uh, we've been relying on you for quite a while, and I think we will in the days and, and, and weeks to come. We really appreciate it. Coming up on Squawk Pod, January 20th will certainly be an unusual inauguration day. Axios co-founder Mike Allen on what the current White House team may be planning. Their dream is that there would be a split screen between a Trump rally in Florida and President Biden taking the oath on the steps of the Capitol. But TV executives tell me, zero chance. We'll be right back. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. Here's Joe Kernan. All right. Big, uh, big goings on in, in Washington all the time. Who would we get if we wanted... Who's that person that used to have their, their finger on the pulse of Hollywood? If we were going to do that for Washington, I think it'd be this guy. Mike Allen is the Axios co-founder. And I thought about how to, uh, to intro you. We talked a little last week. You said you, you said you would retweet things I tweet. I don't recommend that, but I thank you for saying that, that, uh, that you would trust it enough. Because you've got to be very careful. With, with tweets, you sounded right? a little tw- You sounded a little tweet needy, so I'm here for you. I've got your back. <laughs> so with that in mind, I'm going to start this. We want to talk vaccines because you've got some interesting uh, uh, statistics there. But let's say that you would, would, would phrase it in, the, in, the, in Twitter lingo. What was trending? What would be the number one trending item in Washington if, if that was a way to look at it over this weekend? Would it be the Georgia rally? Would it be? Uh, I don't know. You tell me. What would it be? No, trending is how 
President-elect Biden is filling out this cabinet and uh, with the choice for HHS with uh, now California Attorney General Becerra, of course, we have long known him as Congressman Becerra, uh, a request that had come from Hispanic leaders. And so he's starting to get the cabinet that looks like America that he had promised. And a couple more big uh, picks to go, Attorney General, Pentagon, a lot of conflicting advice demands that he's getting on those, but he's trying to tell a story about the next four years, and uh, so far his cabinet has gotten great reviews. Right. Um, let's. I was going to go go to the, the notion that, and I'm not. I'm not saying that. Uh, you know, we do have obviously a, an administration setting up, but we've also got this weird dynamic of a of a competing rally. Do you think that's possible on the day of inauguration, Mike? That's what I meant by the sort of the. The gossipy Washington uh, water cooler talk. Is that really possible? You know, we don't traffic in that sort of thing. Um, So, yeah. So a lot of buzz about what President Trump is going to do on Inauguration Day. And I asked people very close to him, what's the chance that President Trump is going to do something graceful on Inauguration Day? I'm I'm yet to find uh, somebody who will predict that. So Axios has reporting that one idea that he has is, of course, the presidential helicopter is Marine One until the moment that, uh, uh, the, as long as you're president, uh, the presidential plane is Air Force One as long as the president is aboard it. So uh, one plan they're talking about inside is before noon, uh, while he's still president, before Joe Biden takes the oath, that he'll take Marine One, take uh, Air Force One to Florida, do a rally, their dream is that there would be a split screen between a Trump rally in Florida and uh, President Biden taking the oath uh, on the steps of the Capitol, of course, with a very small crowd without uh, the normal uh, trappings, very small, mostly virtual inauguration. But (laughs) TV executives tell me zero chance there would be a split screen. There's a new president. He's taking the oath. Ex-President uh, Trump can hold his rally if he wants. There ain't going to be a split screen at high noon. Well, there might be on one network I can think of. That's right. Yeah, I should say major network uh, executives uh, and uh, <laughs> right. and, right. and 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 and, there, and there's no like. But this is this is going to be a real challenge for President Biden. There has never been an ex who was out there constantly heckling with with both Obama, President Obama, both President George W. Bush, President Clinton, all of them lay low and uh, were mostly quiet. No sign that uh, the president has this uh, in mind. And, and, and he's he said that he probably won't attend. And I thought it was very interesting. Uh, President-elect Biden, who's made a point to say very little about Trump, and I'm told uh, by uh, in interviews with insiders. He's going to say very little about Trump. He takes it as the past. But he did say that for the for the country, he should probably be there at the swearing-in. It's our peaceful transfer right. of power. I think it will surprise people, and I can tell you from my own conversations, it will disappoint only, a lot of people who have worked hard for uh, President uh, Trump. Just real quickly, only 51% of, of Americans likely to get the vaccine as soon as it's uh, available. But I don't know. Maybe a month after those numbers could go up, you would think, once it starts. Right. Just maybe not to be the first one to get the jab. 
No, they could, but this is a real problem. So the uh, bureaucratic term for it is vaccine hesitancy, and it's being tracked closely in the government. But what got what got my attention about this? On Friday, we had a poll from Pew showing that fewer than half of Black Americans who were polled would take the uh, jab right away. But then you pick up uh, yesterday's New York Post, the wood of yesterday's Post first resistors, right. the, the, the poll of, of uh, firefighters in New York were 77% white, so a totally different uh, demographic. Less than half of them saying that they would take the jab. One of their union okay. uh, officials right. saying that they think that they're young, they're healthy, that they don't need it. But that shows that there's a All long right, way to go in educating, building trust. And, of course, trust is something we're short of with all institutions right now. Yep. All right, Mike Allen, Axios, thank you. I appreciate it. Keep your, you know, keep your, keep your ears and eyes open. And you can text me or send me a tweet like you, like you did last week when you get yeah, anything. No, Thanks, I'll, Andrew. Traffic in, I'll traffic and gossip anytime you want. And I'll retweet. I know. <laughs> so will we. And that's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern and subscribe to Squawk Pod. If you like what you hear, let us know. Leave us a rating or write a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find Squawk Pod. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.